developmental optometrist, award-winning author, and international speaker, Dr. Lynn Hellerstein holds powerful and inspiring conversations with her guests on Vision Beyond Sight in areas of healthcare, wellness, education, sports, and psychology. They share their inspirational stories of healing and life transformation through their vision expansion. Billions of people have vision problems, and vision is more than 2020. Vision Beyond Sight will help you see with clarity and gain courage and confidence. Your vision does not define you. You define your vision. With Dr. Lin's new way to look at your life through a new lens, you will be ready to meet yourself and receive visualizations for miracles to come. Welcome to Vision Beyond Sight. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Lynn, and welcome to Vision Beyond Sight. Today, visiting with us is Curtis Madigan. Curtis is truly an amazing person, as you'll quickly see his creativity and success. Today, we're going to talk about rhythm and visualization. Being a musician myself, and also very interested and involved in the world of visualization, I'm very excited to hear about how Curtis incorporates visualization into the world of music. But let's uh, just learn a little bit about Curtis's background. He grew up in Iowa and was inspired to take up the guitar at age 10. Despite his deep love of athletics, he knew that his main passion was music. He was fortunate to work with many high-level artists, including seven-time Grammy winner Maria Schneider, Fred Strum, and many others. Madigan was... uh, awarded the Berkeley College of Music's Best Scholarship to study guitar performance and composition. It was also at Berkeley that he realized there was a huge dearth of information, music education, pedagogy in the field of rhythm. After very intensive training in uh, meditation and martial arts, Curtis turned his attention on the gap in his understanding of music. First, he created and developed the Rhythm Compass, which is a trademark. We'll talk about that. And that has become part of his comprehensive theory of rhythm and founded his company called Sound Formation, utilizing the Sound Formation method, which is also trademark. He speaks internationally on the theory of rhythm and has created music programs that are taught globally. He's published many books. Thank you for the book you sent me. Uh, on methodology for multiple instruments, coaches, professional, and musicians at the highest level. And as I started investigating, learning more about Curtis, I watched some of his videos and his work with kids in some of the school systems, which were just so moving and touching and and, uh, very meaningful. He's known as the Rhythm Doctor. So welcome, Curtis, the Rhythm Doctor, Division Beyond Sight. Thank you, Lynn. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's great. You know, our connection was so interesting. I had just written an article for the Gifted Development Center, which uh, Dr. Linda Silverman uh, created, founded, and leads. Uh, And this was an article on how we use visualization in my field of optometry and working with kids with learning problems and people with concussions and strokes. And you then contacted me after reading the article, and that was our connection. So I've been curious. What about the article touched you 
and you know help create this connection? So I I created my method about seven years ago, and you know one of the biggest pieces is this way of visualizing rhythm called the rhythm compass, and it's like a language for understanding and thinking about rhythm. So it allows a person to visualize rhythmic processes and, and, and cogitate with rhythm, right? And, and it's been really interesting and fascinating teaching it because some people do incredibly well with it. Other people struggle a little bit with it, but there is this always ingrained natural component of visualization within my method. And so when I came across your work, and saw what you're doing with, with vision therapy and visualization. And um, I read your book, See It, Say It, Do It, which I love. Um, it just really, really uh, spoke to me because I really have seen the power of visualization. And um, I think it's an absolutely necessary step in learning, which is exactly what you're teaching, exactly what you're doing. Well, that's so interesting. And have you worked with Dr. Silverman or you know, her book, The Visual Spatial Learner, which is a great book. I'm not sure it's available anymore, but um, it's foundational for, for especially addressing the learning style of many kids who are gifted. Right. I was fortunate to speak at one of her um, consortium uh, conferences for the, the heads of different various gifted schools in Colorado. Um, so... I am. I'm a huge, huge fan of uh, Dr. Silverman. I've read her books. Uh, the Visual Spatial Learner is a, is a must. It's something that I'd really love to see is more in the mainstream because it seems like it got into the public consciousness on kind of a level of people thinking about, uh, I'm a visual learner, but they missed out on what it actually is, which is a visual spatial thinking style and an actual hemispheric dominance. So some yeah. of the subtleties absolutely got <laughs> got missed there. Yeah, that is so true. And um, just for our listeners, uh, I had Dr. Silverman on the podcast. It's probably been about a month ago. Um, we've worked together for well over 30 years, seeing mainly kids that she's identified as being gifted, usually visual spatial learners, but they often have some type of, even though visions are strength, they've had some visual uh, integrated problems. And so we've done vision therapy and we actually have done some preliminary research showing that some of these kids before, when you look at their IQ scores before and after vision therapy, some of these kids actually showed significant increases in IQ, which that's a whole nother topic, but it's, it's all about if you understand somebody's learning style and then can help teach them in that learning style, their expansion in the world and their thinking can be amazing. And so that's been my my lovely experience uh, with uh, Dr. Linda Silverman, who's a dear friend as well. So let's jump into your work uh, as a rhythm doctor. Help define a few terms as we start. Um, you know, being a podcast, we don't get to use visualization as what as far as seeing your pictures, which I found very useful. So it's up to you to describe your pictures so we can visualize, you know, what is a rhythm compass? What does it look like? And, and tell us more about that. 
Sure. So the rhythm compass is a very simple way of visualizing rhythm that uses geometric shapes. And so rhythm is rhythm is movement first and foremost. And the way we perceive rhythm in the body is based off of the human locomotion cycle. And so it's really a cycle. And so linear notation misses that component and the rhythm compass highlights that component. It highlights the continuity of rhythm through a ring. So there's a circle and that would be like the continuous flow of time that we all experience from day to day. And then you have pinpoints. You have dots along the ring or circle or cycle. And those dots show the exact mathematical precision of various rhythms. So the rhythm compass is, in my opinion, extremely necessary for understanding rhythm completely because you understand it on a, with mathematical precision and you also understand how it correlates with the two main types of movement that we perceive in our own bodies, which is discrete movement, which would be like uh, chopping a vegetable, for instance. You're doing just, right? You have very distinct uh, back and forth oscillation of movement. And then you have a timing that corresponds with that, like right? And then you have a continuous motion, which would be like the stabilizing hand on the vegetable in this case. And so there's always these two types of movement. You have a flow and then you have very precise uh, coordinates, if you will. So that's how the rhythm compass works. Um, it's designed for cogitation. It's designed for the ability to um, take one rhythm or rhythmic shape, as they're called, and then take it through a process where you could actually do reflections with it. You can rotate it. And that allows you to do lots of interesting rhythmic iterations in a way that's very simple to visualize and understand. So could you explain, let's let's start, I know you work with many professional top musicians, but let's kind of start at the basics with kids. How would you mm-hmm. start with, a, and what age would you start with a kiddo? Sure. So we do after-school hand percussion classes in Denver here in about 30 different schools. And they're playing on darbukas and djembes and cajones, bonga cajones, um, a lot of really fun hand percussion instruments from various places around the world. And what they're learning is they're learning, how do I repeat one beat first, right? Just one, 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 and to do it steadily, which means you're not getting faster or slower. And once they can do that and hear it clearly in their mind and then perform it clearly on their instrument, you can play with any musician of any level. So we have what are called level one shapes in my method, which is one beat, which would be like a quarter note or two beats, like two eighth notes and four beats, like four sixteenths. So they're like speeds. Um, but we just cycle them without thinking of a time signature yet. So it'd just be one, 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 and then two, one, two, one, two, one, and then four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. So those three simple rhythmic shapes, you can already do with those, you can already create a tremendous amount of music um, just through the combinations of them or playing them simultaneously because they interlock with each other very well. You know, I loved watching your video and watching the kids with all different kinds of little instruments playing. Um, 
Do you include also basic body movement uh, when they're first starting? So this is a really interesting uh, field for me, which is the field of rhythmic perception. And it's not usually addressed in this type of a way of rhythmic perception. It's usually addressed in people thinking about, okay, I need to maybe move around, walk around, stomp, uh, clap my hands, do some sort of uh, dance-like movement, waving the arms or something to try to feel the music. Well, all those things can be helpful. However, what I've found is that usually the internal aspects of rhythmic perception of, of what we're actually perceiving in our body um, can be left out. And especially, I mean, because I also work with professional musicians, I understand this on a very, very precise level because they'll be playing complex rhythms. And if they can't feel them easily and naturally, they won't be able to play them effortlessly while they're performing on stage. So, usually what we're focused on is more rhythmic perception. And so that's twofold. You have the ability to hear the rhythm very vividly and clearly in your mind, which is extremely important because most young students, they don't realize that they're constantly thinking, which is a sound, it's a sonic process in your head. And you can think of just a, you can think musically, you can think of a, a rhythm and r repeat in your head and listen to it. And so once they get that, that would be step one. And then step two would be how do you feel it clearly in your body? And so what we're focused more on is the stability of the movement, the quality of the movement, the evenness of the movement when you're performing on your drum. And then later on, as students get older, there's other things they can focus on that correlate with proprioception. Yeah, that's so interesting because, first of all, many of the patients I see, young kids, especially when they have reading issues, fluency and rhythm rhythm is a problem. Mm -hmm. And and so we go back to basic body movement and some metronome, which we can talk later. Um, and also, we also see a correlation. A lot of kids who are very musical and understand rhythm and music are often also very good at math. Do you see that correlation? Yes. So I see a couple of interesting correlations. One is that gifted students do incredibly well with this method because it's multifaceted, it's layered. They can visualize, there's there's uh, movement, you know, athletic components to it. There's, there's all sorts of interesting things they can grab onto from different angles. We use arrays, we use, we literally use math in the method too. And so that population does well, I would say. Um, can you repeat your question again? Um, just, you know, I was talking about the correlation with math. A lot of your good musicians are also good at math and just wondered about, you know, the correlation that you, if you saw a correlation, especially in math concepts and um, even into your higher level musicians, if, if you saw some kind of correlation there. Yeah, I would I would say it's it's interesting, Lynn, because some math students will do really well, and some I would say because I use the rhythm compass, which is very visual. Not every student that's excelling at math is a visual spatial thinker, and so the rhythm compass can trip them up a little bit. But we do a lot of linear depictions 
as well, which can help them. So I, I can't necessarily say I've seen a direct correlation, but um, in terms of people who are diagnosed as gifted, then yes, absolutely, I've seen that. You know, Curtis, another thing that I've noticed is some of our uh, patients that are um, have been identified as being gifted and their musicians are often very creative, artistic, um, but they can't play to somebody else's beat. So their, their music, and I see it in dance as well, they often play music beautifully, but if you put a metronome or they're trying to play in a group, they really struggle. I always, I think of it as they're beautiful musicians to their own beat and rhythm. Mm -hmm. yep. Have you seen that? Yep. And how, how would you deal with that? Yeah, so what we do is we give every student that starts the sound formation method an ear training assessment where they can see exactly where their strengths strengths and weaknesses are in music. So whether that's uh, they excel at hearing higher register pitch or whether they excel at lower register pitch or they're very good at rhythms or they're not very good at rhythms, all these things can help us understand what the best entry point is for teaching the student where we can then teach all the other aspects of the method through their strengths. And do you find uh, a lot of, especially the gifted kids have close to perfect pitch? Do you see that? Um, I wouldn't say that, no, because perfect pitch is, is pretty, uh, pretty rare. Um, it's kind of an anomaly, even among gifted students. Um, so I haven't, I haven't really seen that. And do you actually train them on pitch as well? For say sure. Yeah. 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 There's okay. a tremendous amount. The, I would say what we're doing is we're filling in a huge theoretical gap that's in music education around rhythm. Um, people have a very elementary and and often confused way of teaching rhythm and what we're doing is extremely scientific and thorough um it's much more geared towards mastery but yes there's a tremendous amount around pitch and harmony for sure great um so let's get back to um music notation which is been the widely accepted way to see music you know, is this rhythm compass a replacement for it? Is it in, in addition to it? So what I would say is imagine now just a white uh, sheet or like white blank canvas. And then on top of that, you can put a, few, a black line and then another black line, another black line, another black line, five black lines total. And then you're going to imagine notes on that and see how engaging that is for you, right? And so this is for the listener. How engaging is that for you? The, 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 it, one of the issues with notation is that in linear systems, it can be very problematic to visualize um, because they're sequential in nature. And so it's just like reading. It's a symbolic process, and you're translating the symbol and so there's a little bit of a delay of going, okay, that's this, that's this, and then you're going through it, and it can feel tedious or cumbersome. And this is something where music students, if they're struggling 
um, to a moderate or severe degree, they can just stop playing music because reading is just giving them, uh, it's just, it just feels like they can't really get it in this way that's fluid and natural. And so part of the design of the rhythm compass is to be the right hemisphere to notation's left hemisphere. It's to create balance and they work together. Notation is amazing at, at condensing a huge amount of information with, you have a time signature and a key signature, you have pitch, you have bass clef and treble clef and other clefs, and you can see harmony and rhythm all at the same time. What's interesting about notation is that it was created around the year 1000 by Guido D'Arezzo, and he created it based off of our five fingers. And so um, this was a, a monk and I believe they're doing chants and choral type of music, acapella music, and he needed to notate pitch for the monks. And so notation was designed around showing pitch. And then it was about 700 years later that the rhythmic part of notation really started to become codified and, and, and solidified as we know it today. And so rhythm is often very tricky to understand on the staff. It's, it also doesn't show mathematical alignments the way the rhythm compass does. So the rhythm compass is the, a friend to notation. It's supposed to complement it and they're supposed to work together. And that's what your work is, whether it's with a little kiddo, because I know so many kids that have started uh, an instrument and they love to play and they're often very good at playing. But just as you said, um, pretty soon trying to read the music and integrate with the actually playing of the instrument becomes too frustrating and, and, and they quit. And that's what we don't want to see happen. Uh, we're going to take a break here in just a minute, Curtis. And when we get back, we're going to talk more about visualization, both in rhythm as well as, you know, just visualization in general for music. Discover the power of the seeing brain, the creator of your true vision. Dr. Lynn Hellerstein's number one bestseller book, Expand Your Vision, helps you see with clarity and gain courage and confidence. Remove roadblocks and visualize your new lens to see and experience your world. Get Expand Your Vision on Amazon or visit lynnhellerstein.com. Developmental optometrist, award-winning author, and international speaker, Dr. Lynn Hellerstein holds powerful and inspiring conversations with her guests on Vision Beyond Sight in areas of healthcare, wellness, education, sports, and psychology. They share their inspirational stories of healing and life transformation through their vision expansion. Vision Beyond Sight will help you find clarity in your functional vision and and expand the power of your seeing brain to gain courage, confidence, and success in your life. Join Dr. Lynn each week for a new exciting episode, Vision Beyond Sight. 
Can your child organize, really organize? Parents and teachers will have practical, step-by-step strategies and templates to help get their children organized with Dr. Lynn Hellerstein's Organize It Workbook. Increased organizational skills create success and confidence in school, sports, and life. Get Organize It on Amazon or visit lynnhellerstein.com. Welcome back to Vision Beyond Sight. Here's Dr. Lynn. Hi, we're with Curtis, uh, Curtis Madigan, who's a professional musician and has created the sound formation method and talks a lot about working with the rhythm compass and really getting people to not just learn music through seeing notation, but really seeing imagery of the shapes and forms of rhythm. And I'm fascinated by it because of the kind of work that I do in uh, vision, vision therapy. You know, just one quick story I wanted to share with you before we get back um, to this rhythm compass. Uh, Years ago, I had a patient who was a, a professional choral conductor and she could hear all the voices. She never even, uh, when she was at a concert, she didn't even have the score with her. She had it all in her head. And she was a fantastic director until one day she sustained a brain injury. And that brain injury wiped out her auditory memory and her auditory imagery. And she could no longer conduct without music. But the problem was her ability to read the music at the level and the speed that she could hear in her head was totally uh, different. And the whole process of visualization, I mean, she didn't recall that she really ever visually had visual imagery. She spoke all about her auditory imagery. And I found it vast fascinating because we worked with her on recreating her visual imagery. And it took quite some time for her to, because it was a whole new method of seeing and hearing the music for her. And, and, and it was fascinating. It was early in my career, long before I understood a lot about visualization, but she taught me such a lesson of the importance of integration of all senses and how people process different. And I know in our work, we do a lot of work with visualization for performance, um, preparing and getting ready for the performance. Is that some part of an area that you work in at all? Um, yes, I would say a lot of the professional musicians that I'm doing coaching with have issues with performance anxiety or not being able to get into the zone completely. Um, so yes, um, they definitely, we, I mean, there's, I don't think there's anyone who doesn't need some type of breath work, um, you know, processes for getting in the zone, uh, calming yourself down. Everyone can use that for sure. Sure. Well, great. Well, it just that that musician, the choral director just came up as we were talking to you. I was I was just so fascinated by her gift that she lost with a brain injury. So thanks for hearing me out on that. Well, let's let's move into uh, a little bit about my book. See it, say it, do it. You had read it and you found it really resonated with you. And I'm, I'm curious as to, you know, what we do 
similarly, um, me being an eye doctor, you being a professional musician who's coaching and teaching, but, you know, utilize case examples and some of your stu- students. And let's talk a little bit about what you seem to get out of the see it, say it, do it process. Yeah, so I love the I love the see it, say it, do it process because it actually it actually teaches to embody. There's an embodiment aspect to it, and that's usually completely left out in traditional forms of education, um, at, at least in our country and 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 probably globally too. And so there's an aspect of how you can engage the mind's imagination and, and creativity. Uh, the importance of using the breath, the importance of physicalizing um, what you're trying to learn in the body through movement, through balance. Um, it's it's a wonderful way of looking at learning, period. And that's what really resonated with me is that we think about learning as just, I get some sort of facts or, uh, you know, I read a book and then I take it in and then I can answer questions about it and I've learned something mm-hmm. and what's missing what's missing is the the adducing process adducing which is the root of education which means to draw out from within to bring out from uh, our internal knowingness and so it's a kind of a, I think you're really hitting on what edu- education actually is which is bringing out children's innate ability to know uh, within themselves and rather than saying hey this is how it is this is how it is this is how it is you're going where it's it's more of an internal dialogue where they can see what is true for them and along with objective truths it's it's the external and the internal that's so interesting you mention it because when i speak i talk about does your internal vision integrate or match your external visioning because so often you know, this started when we started working with young kids with reading problems and they lose their place on the page and and have focusing convergence problems. And we do vision therapy. They get much better skills, could track better. But internally, they still saw themselves as being losers and poor readers and not smart. And so that internal and external visioning integration is uh was critical and it's just interesting how you explain it so differently but we come to so many of similar kinds of conclusions on that um, which is great uh, another thing that we've also seen that i wanted to ask you about we see many musicians uh, that have real difficulty with sight reading and they they may yeah. or may not have regular reading problems, and you don't right. read a piece of music in the same eye movement pattern that you would read music. Um, what's your experience with with sight reading uh, with yeah. some musicians? Yeah, I love that you asked that because sight reading is like the bane of musicians' existence, and there's so many hilarious things around it. Like there's stories, you know, there's the the anecdote of how do you get a guitar player to stop playing. He had a piece of music in front of him, <laughs> right? That's great. Uh, and and guitarists now are notorious for not reading music because there's tablature, and so they'll look at tablature, which is more of a visual process, right? It's showing, hey, this is it just shows the strings, and then which fret you're playing on which string, and so it's much more visual. And guitarists love it. Um, the interesting thing about guitar is that you can play the same note sometimes in five different places on the neck. 
So if you're sight reading that says play this C, you're going, okay, is this the C on the, on the B string of the first fret? Is it the C on the G string in the fifth fret? Is it the C on the 10th string, the D string, or the 15th fret of the A string, you know? And so you have all these possibilities. Um, but what's really interesting, Lynn, is that even at Berklee College of Music, even at New England Conservatory of Music, and these uh, amazing institutions, they're seeing around 30% of their students have sight reading problems, like major sight reading problems. So it's a, it's a big thing. And what do they do about it once they see it's an issue? Um, not a lot. I think I think they. I mean, you know, there's some classes where you can get better at at reading, but it's it's usually not specifically addressed. You usually don't take sight reading classes. I would say it's more probably expected of you to I don't know get your act together. I, I don't know when I was when I was at Berkeley. There's nothing for improving reading. And, you know, to just go back on why the rhythm compass is great and why it helps with actually reading notation is because once you recognize rhythmic shapes on the rhythm compass and then you start to see, you, you literally just start to see these shapes when you're sight reading. And so you're able to rapidly make sense of a lot of information that you're looking at really quickly because you're just going, oh, it's that shape, it's that shape that I know in that practice, it's that shape that I know in that practice. It kind of pops out. So one person that I trained, a bass player, a uh, local bass player in Denver here, who's a professional musician, uh, he said it was akin to um, you know, going from 2D to 3D when he started using the rhythm compass shapes because they would just pop out on him when he's reading music. That is so interesting. Um, one, I would love, it sounds like a studies in order to really look at the visual visual skills of musicians who are not very good sight readers. I only have, yeah. you know, independent kind of um, case studies of the musicians I've seen uh, because it's so important to open your peripheral world up when you're uh, reading music. Mm -hmm. And they, they could be, yeah, sorry to interrupt. They, they could be completely unaware of the sorts of things that you're teaching where people have undiagnosed vision issues. Right. That could absolutely be a thing that's causing this problem in sight reading. Because we know, especially because of my work in patients with concussion, when somebody's, let's say, had a stroke and lost their field of vision to the right, they are absolutely stuck in reading. Even though they know the words and they understand, it's that peripheral awareness that opens them up to moving, you know, across the page. And so we look at strategies of turning the music and doing other things. So it's just fascinating uh, because I've seen so many great musicians. In fact, James Galway um, has what's called nystagmus. If you've ever seen him close, his eyes are rapidly moving. And in my experience, when he used to come and play with our flute choir, he would only play music that he was very familiar with. And we're like, you kidding? He's the best in the world. We couldn't even play, you know, things. And I always wondered about him, you know, from a visual perspective. Yet on stage, rarely do you see music, a music stand in front of him. He's always plays from, from memory and field. So anyways, to keep going back to some of my visual experience, I would love to hear about some of your music students, both, you know, the kids learning as well as some of your professional musicians, what you've been able to do to help them 
through the sound formation method and your coaching? Mm-hmm. So I work with a really wide age group group of students. I work from kids that are as young as four or five, all the way through professional musicians that are out touring and playing with some of the top artists uh, in the country. And so um, it's it's an interesting process because because what I'm doing is is so different from the traditional approach of thinking about rhythm, which is around time signatures, which is around uh, just note value durations and and some honestly archaic and outdated uh, terminologies around syncopation and hemiola. There's not a lot of rhythmic information for people to grab onto, and so there's just a, a big old gap. And so if I'm working with someone that's um, you know a musical director for Selena Gomez and uh, Ariana Grande, or someone who is a, a fabulous guitarist who's out there um, uh, performing very very complex rhythmic things, um, the process is kind of the same, and and that they need to start thinking about and understanding rhythm in a different way, um, which then allows them to start to develop an infrastructure because. Most musicians are missing this rhythmic infrastructure where they can think about rhythm as easily as they think about aspects of harmony, like chord progressions, and then you have scales that go with certain chords, you have key signatures, um, you have intervals. All these things are basically missing uh, in rhythm uh, in the way we've been teaching it because rhythmic shapes are, are making up a huge amount of that. Uh, information. And so when you learn rhythmic shapes, suddenly you're able to think about all these amazing relationships between rhythm that you just wouldn't think, by the way, we normally write them out in notation. They don't jump out to you in the same way. So a lot of this is around just how are you thinking about rhythm? And then uh, I would say I give give a lot of principles of rhythm to musicians, whether they're young students or professional musicians. So Principles of rhythm are things like repetition. Um, repetition in rhythm is a law of rhythm, and it really comes from movement again, because rhythm is movement. So it comes from uh, Newton's first law, which is body in motion or at rest perseveres in state of motion or rest uh, unless another force acts upon it. And so the same thing with rhythm. If you don't cycle one type of rhythmic figure over and over and over and over, you don't get a, uh, you don't actually get to know it. Um, and so you may see eighth notes a lot and 16th notes a lot in notation, but it's very different from cycling two eighth notes over and over or cycling four sixteenths over and over because then the, uh, f- the figure comes, it just pops out. It's like a character. It's, it's like a, a person almost, and you can get to know these, so, for like four sixteenths, right? And another figure out of out of four sixteenths could be or which feels like a gallop, right? And so they have different feelings, and when you repeat them, they jump out to you that way. That's so interesting. Is this what you would have called? Uh, is this an example of what you would call a rhythmic disease? <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, the rhythmic diseases, the biggest one is usually just uh, perception issues where people are are using the upper part of their body limb, like their head and their neck, 
to try to feel rhythm and think about rhythm. Really interesting one that I wanted to mention for this podcast is eye position. When, when people are trying to figure out difficult rhythms, they'll often look up as if to kind of, uh, in this sort of like beseeching way, you know, like, please help, I need help with my rhythm. But they're kind of going out of their head and out of their body by looking up. And so that's something I see over, over and over when I'm working with musicians is eye position. And I get them to look parallel uh, to the ground or below parallel to the ground where they're kind of looking downwards a little bit because it naturally puts them back in their body. And in, in rhythmic perception, you need to be in the lower half of your body predominantly. And then when the kinetic chain is built from the ground up, you can use the rest of your body, like your head and your neck to feel rhythm. So that that's the biggest one for rhythmic diseases. You know, that's really interesting, Curtis, because when we teach visualization, most people in observation and actually some research in neurolinguistic programming shows that people either stare straight ahead or move their eyes up to move into that process. And so mm-hmm. it's interesting your observation of doing that. And when you actually do have them look down, it does. That's when people are often into their body and they're sensing and their feelings on it. So it's interesting your observation and and is part of their looking up, looking for those patterns? I would say it's part of their anxiety and tension. It's part of their inability to feel it properly. They're, they're just embodying their inability to feel it properly by looking up. That's very interesting. Then, you know, next time that happens, just be, I'd be curious that because some people are aware they're they're visualizing. Most people aren't, you know, like if I said, where was your last vacation? You know, people automatically stare or look up mm-hmm. and if and be curious if they that's how we teach spelling and patterns of spelling. And so I'm just kind of curious mm-hmm. if the looking up is the anxiety, you know, the break in the whole body integration or um mm-hmm. They're, they're checking out their imagery that you, you've helped them create in their shapes and forms. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's, there's a more relaxed way of visualizing, which is to gaze within yourself. Or you, it's not that I don't think it's maybe necessarily a, a, a I don't know, but I, I'm just sharing what I've seen. Yeah, I've seen well, that to be a problem, at least for visualizing rhythm and, and or not for visualizing, but for feel. It's so it's interesting because we're talking about visualizing and rhythmic perception. And so looking up is something where it's problematic and, and visualize or, or problematic and feeling rhythm. Um, so, yes. Oh, that's fascinating. Well, Curtis, we're almost out of time. I want to make sure that I give you time. You just had a brand new book come out, um, which uh, thank you again for that gift. If you want to talk about that as well as people, where people can get more information about your process and, and your speaking and coaching. Sure. So if you want to see more of my work, you can visit soundformationmusic.com. I do work with professional musicians and coach them. I do train and certify music teachers in my method. There are a number of books that are out. The latest is in a series of books around rhythm theory and around the method that we've been talking And then we also have ear training assessments, which are extremely helpful, especially if you're curious as to where your strengths and weaknesses are 
and how to alleviate them. Well, that's great. And all your information is on our uh, show notes, so people can certainly uh, check it out there. And I just really want to thank you for your time and your creativity and expertise in this area. It's just fascinating. And and thanks for all you're doing and what you're bringing to music, which is music touches my heart and I'm sure many others as well. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you for joining us today on Vision Beyond Sight. Join Dr. Lynn Hellerstein each week to help you find clarity in your functional vision and expand the power of your seeing brain to gain courage, confidence, and success in your life. Remember, your vision does not define you. You define your vision. For more information and find additional podcasts, visit lynnhellerstein.com. See you next time on Vision Beyond Sight.